Episode. This is on Final Girls throughout the decades. We've got a brilliant selection of guest hosts of us today, all horror lovers, all brilliant women that we love and admire. And first time on the show for Chloe and Amy. So hello and welcome. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Fantigly waving. So let's just get started. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to the show? Um, we'll start with Chloe. What do you do? Where are you from? Um, I am Chloe Leeson. I'm the editor-in-chief of Screen Queens. Um, I live in Stockton-on-Tees in the northeast of England. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and Abby, where, you're, you're nearby from us as well, aren't you? Uh, yeah, so I'm in Gateshead, so near Newcastle in the northeast. Um, yeah. So I'm actually a PhD researcher in found footage horror film. Um, although I hate saying that because then people think that I know everything, but like I really don't. So yeah, uh, I'm just a horror lover. Let's just say that. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes it's like I can't decide if I'm working or if I'm having fun. Like it's really difficult. It's really difficult to know. Like sometimes I just want to relax and then I can't be bothered to watch a horror film. So I'm like, oh god, I'm gonna have to have my thinking brain on. So this is why I just end up watching like Real Housewives every day. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. And do, do you know what we get that ever since making a film festival is that when we go to other film festivals, you sit there and you're watching the films and you're like, why am I marking this? Like, why am I studying this? Like, let's just enjoy the film. Um, and Courtney, give us a little introduction for you, even though you've been on the show many, many times. Hi, I'm Courtney Cheshire. Uh, I've been on that having it all many times, as Karen's just said. Um, I'm from the United States. I'm in Georgia right now. So a little, little earlier than all of y'all, <laughs> but happy to be here. <laughs> I know you're so good to actually join us. Whenever, whenever Courtney joins us for a podcast, she's always just woken up and has a coffee in her hand. I had no idea you were American. Absolutely no clue. Really? Oh my goodness, that's crazy. You look English to me. I know, we've been talking for like two years. <laughs> I, do, I do think you look English. I don't know what it is about it, but there's something. I, I, in blood, I am. Like, my family is from the UK, so maybe that's why. But Cheshire, that's Cheshire. Probably I know. I would say it. I've always said your name is Courtney Cheshire, and it just sounds whenever you Cheshire, I'm like, oh, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's lovely. Um, and Neha's back with me as well, who you saw from the last session. So this session is all about final girls through the decades, which is something we've wanted to do for a long time, but there's just so much scope to cover. So let's start back in the 70s. Um, now, there may be early examples of this, but we're going to start here because this kind of seems to be where the kind of slasher trend really kind of took off. So we have a few examples. We have Black Christmas, uh, Jess Bradford. Uh, we have the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, which is Sally Hardesty. I always get her last name wrong. Sally Hardesty um, and we have of course Laura Strode, Laurie Strode from Halloween and Ripley from Alien which people don't really count sometimes but she is indeed a final girl it's basically a slasher in space right so yeah the kind of obviously the slasher trend is really 
big in the 70s. We're seeing that women, you know, their boobs are out in these films as well. You've got that classic, typical, the virginal, innocent girl is usually the final girl. So that's the first question for you guys. Why do you think that is the kind of catalyst for the final girl, that they are the virgin, the innocent, usually mousy-haired, coloured girl um, who wears the button up to the top? What do you think this is? Do you think it's men kind of betraying that women should be sweet and innocent and therefore won't be mutilated by a knife? Share your thoughts. Yeah, I think it goes back to just in general archetypes of like, you know, like Eve is bad because she didn't listen. So you need to be a good girl and and not uh, break the rules. But I do think it's interesting because though that is super popular in the 70s, and I don't mean to jump right into it, but like Jess in Black Christmas is not that girl. Like she immediately, she's one of the earliest examples, but she also breaks the trope almost before it's established, which it's interesting that though she started it, it kind of, did, I don't know, I feel like the, the trope wasn't shaped by her as much as you think it could have been. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's bizarre because like the, the ending of that Black Christmas film, obviously it's been, what, three, four, five Black Christmas since then. Um, it's quite ambiguous as well. And it's always about almost not trusting the boyfriend. And we see this in other horror films later in um, the decades as well, particularly with Scream, for example. And it's kind of about you know they sedate her and again it's not believing women like there's a big misogynistic undertone to the final girl trope as much as we love them and we you know champion and cherish them they are created a lot out of that kind of male opinion of oh she said everyone killed everyone she must be crazy let's just leave her in the house but tell me about texas chainsaw massacre because obviously this is a lot more violent then Black Christmas, for example, the kind of, you know, you have that meat hook scene that a lot of people said impacted the future of horror. There's, you know, there's a lot of violence happening within this. Where do you think that kind of, and you know, that for me, that kind of scene at the end on the back of the truck is iconic, like the sense of freedom and euphoria. Did we have to see that much violence? Was it, you know? So like, I mean, if I go, if we go back to like what the final girl, like where the term sort of came from, it's like from an essay in 1992 by um, a woman called Carol J. Clover. So she kind of did the the main body of work that recognised who the final girl is. And it was from um, her book called Men, Women and Chainsaws. And her idea of what the final girl was, um, was actually about the relationship between the actual final girl and sort of the the villain. So the final girl exists in conjunction with the villain. So it's not just them themselves. It's like at the beginning, the girl is, like you said, mousy, sometimes quite androgynous. Um, There's something about her that's like not like other girls. like, you know, she doesn't want to go out and party and she's a virgin and all that kind of stuff. Would, um, would you say it's kind of like the horror version of that manic pixie dream girl we have as well? Yeah, kind of. It's like, it's like, oh, well, look at this girl. She's um, she's not a slag or whatever. <laughs> yeah, she, she's she's um, good. she's a good girl, basically. And look at all these other teenagers um, that end up getting killed off um, because they're kind of bad in, in, a, in a sense um, but there's like in in kind of the initial essay there's just a lot to do with sort of gender and kind of almost gender bending and so at the end of the film Carol Clover would say that the final girl kind of almost surpasses her femininity and she almost becomes masculine um, so at the beginning of the film you've got a male villain and a female 
um, by Laurel Gill. But by the end, what um, she's trying to say is you end up getting quite a masculine heroine and quite a feminine villain. I mean, I don't know how much oh. I agree. I don't know how much I agree with that personally because a lot of it's rooted in like psychoanalysis and stuff. Um, but it's quite interesting that at the beginning we see her as a girl that we almost society wants us to be and then by the end of it she kind of surpasses that but then I, I don't know if I would agree that that's almost masculine in a way that if you're strong powerful that you're now masculine but yeah I guess it's something to think about like when you think about the final girls it's that they're intrinsically sort of connected to the the villain it's not just them it's their relationship do you regard Ripley as a final girl what do you guys think? Because I know sometimes it gets brought up and people are like, oh, I don't know, it's a space film, it's not a horror film. I mean, for me, it's fucking terrifying, so. <laughs> yeah, I say I would say she is, for sure. I mean, um, I'm just chirp- like chirping in because I feel like that that was my gap. <laughs> I don't really have much like to say that's smart, but like she definitely is. I think it is a horror film. It's not like... That's not like, I'm trying to think of a sci-fi film that's just really generic, but I can't. But like, it is horrible. It's super gory. And it's like, there's, you know, sci-fi horror, it's like, it's still a genre at the end of the day. But I think um, I've just been like talking to Drew about this, like about how the definition of Final Girls changed over time and stuff. And I think like Ripley is definitely an original one in the sense that like she comes out of nowhere and that's the whole thing is that she's not the like primary focus of the earlier parts of the movie that she sort of comes into her own at the end. You don't expect it, not because she's a woman, but because she's not the focus. Whereas like now we're getting movies that are, you're going, this is the girl, this is the one it's going to be. Oh, wow, you've got to be so surprised that it was her that won. Like, nah, I fucking know she's on the poster at the front. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it was an egg on the alien poster. You've got no idea. You know, like I, I think she comes out of the background, and that's that's a good final girl to me. Is that the one that you don't expect, and not because she was written to not be expected? If that makes sense. I mean, let's move on to the eighties. So Neha, you've got some examples of final girls from the eighties as well, because this is when that kind of American horror started to really amp up the volume a little bit. So some of the final girls of the eighties, you have Wendy Torrance, played by Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Uh, Ginny Field, played by Amy Steele in Friday the 13th Part 2, and Nancy Thompson, played by Heather Langenkamp in A Nightmare on Elm Street, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3. You know, I study a lot of, like, youth culture in on my MA, um, so, like, I'm really interested in that. And the whole, like, concept of the final girl is really bred out of, like, it's not actually bred out of, like, liberal means and liberal ideas it's like very much the opposite like historically that it's come from directors wanting to push forward a social narrative that controls women that shows them the whole like virginal thing like oh she's a virgin so she's fine she's not gonna die this one's not gonna die because she didn't smoke a bong she didn't do a shot like ever since sort of James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause and then youth culture grew and moved and the teenagers became such a big market movies was just the most accessible and like I guess in a way like thoughtless way for the man to control people and to sort of push forward a narrative without being like in the newspapers like oh teenagers did this so and so did that it's like we'll put them in a horror movie where that it's intended to shock them they're all going to go because they're all stupid and then they're all going to get pushed forward this message that's going to like just be drilled into them that they should behave like that and bad things won't happen to them which is obviously yeah yeah I think it's really interesting because I definitely as a teenager bought into the whole I'm not like the girls 
like I'm I'm like completely different and I'm not like these girls that go out and I don't know what uh, wear makeup and all this other stuff when I when I secretly was anyway um but I think there's something about like the final girl that almost is really quite misogynistic but also empowering at the same time so like you watch it and you're like oh well here are some really pretty beautiful girls and as a teenager maybe I didn't feel like that and they're all getting killed and the one the nerdy one is getting to the end so there's something quite empowering about that but then also tearing down other women at the same time it's quite like a I think being a like a feminist horror fan you've got to kind of deal with those two things like quite a lot of the films you watch yes. are made by men quite misogynistic but I think you can kind of get something out of it um as well yeah I mean, Courtney, obviously you and I have spoken a lot about directors in the past and their treatment of women. Do you have anything to add to that and how that's maybe evolved a little bit since the 80s? Uh, I think in general, just like what you're saying, the fact that women are being allowed to make more movies (laughs) is definitely changing that. And I think the more women you get involved in horror, the, the more realistic you'll get and, you know, the less... I don't know, just the, the trope will kind of die out, hopefully. I mean, that's not to say that women can't buy, you know, buy, female directors can't buy into tropes as well. But I think in general, just even male directors are realizing maybe they don't even truly believe it, but they're realizing that society is going to kind of come at them with pitchforks a little more now if they were to, you know, treat a female actress the way that Hubert treated Shelley Duvall, like that just won't fly anymore. Thank God, of course. But uh, yeah, I, I, th- I hope it's getting better, but you know, you still hear stories, of course, of horrible things happening behind the scenes, but I think we're, we're moving upwards at least. And I think, you know, the more women you have on set, whether it's in a directing capacity or just in general, uh, you know, the better it will be, there'll be more accountability and there just should be more women involved anyway, of course, because it's been, it's taken too long. (laughs) So moving on to the nineties, I feel like this is when we started to see a shift Obviously, we had examples like from Dust Till Dawn, for example, where you have that innocent virgin type. Um, and then you've got, you know, like, I feel like the American high school really entered the genre at this point, And we started to think, right, OK, it's all great. And obviously we had characters like in Halloween and Friday the 13th that were kind of high school age. But this is where the, the setting kind of moved into the high school, which for me, obviously, I think me and Nehra spoke about this on the show before to be young and idolize that American high school life, like the jocks, the cheerleaders are like, oh, it's so cool. Throw horror into the mix. As a horror fan, you're like, this is amazing. So when you had films like I Know What You Did Last Summer, for example, and again, it's that typical slasher picking one off by one, all typically white, all typically gorgeous, the jocks, you know, things like that. It is being compared to Scream, and I do feel, and I'm going to try not to make this a whole Scream podcast, but I do feel like Scream did just interrupt the flow and open up the genre because it is so meta. It talks about the rules. You know, he actually has rules, the character. I feel like the character of Randy is just based on every single horror film fan that exists. And he made this because of his disappointment with the Nightmare on Elm Street films. So it's kind of like he studied himself and thought, right, that didn't work. What can I do now? And we have the typical rule. So rule number one, you will not survive if you have sex. Rule number two, you will not survive if you drink or do drugs. Rule number three, you will not survive if you say, I'll be right back. And number four, everyone is a suspect. What did you guys think when you first watched Scream? I think it's interesting. By the time I had seen it, because I didn't see it till I was in like high school, long after it had come out, 
I feel like I had already seen movies trying to be Scream. And so it like clicked for me that this was the movie that like established this weird self-aware subgenre of horror and nothing will do it as good as Scream. And I think it is because it's made by Wes Craven, who has made so many horror movies that you have this master of horror who is so familiar with it that he's able to turn it on, turn it on its head and really, you know, do it correctly and not to say like once it's been done it's been done but it can never be done as good as scream and i think you know just exposing how how dumb horror can be sometimes i mean i love horror i i'm grateful that it exists but you know just the character of um like you were saying i've just forgot his name but the character randy. That is like the, yeah randy like randy is it's so funny to watch someone like that because it just to to see it like picked apart you know like you know, you see yourself in it and it's funny and, you know, he makes me feel like a bit of a, a nerd myself, but I feel seen. Scream was probably the first horror film that I watched. Probably, I was still slightly too young, I'm not that old, um, to watch it. And I just thought, oh my God, this is the best film I've ever seen. Um, so the beginning, obviously, I had, I was really young, so I'd never seen anything like it where Drew Barrymore, so spoiler if anybody hasn't seen it, well, maybe you should go watch it. So the spoiler is at the beginning, Drew Barrymore, you think, is the final girl. She's getting, like, attacked and whatever, and you think, oh, she'll survive. She'll be the main character, Drew Barrymore, famous actress, and then she, like, dies within the first five minutes. Uh, and I just also, remember that being like, wait a minute. Yeah, and like Chloe said, she's on the poster. She's, she's yeah. just Drew Barrymore. And I remember thinking, wait, wait, wait a minute, this isn't supposed to happen. Like, I only knew films that kind of had a set goal. So you kind of knew which characters would survive and blah, blah, blah. And I just remember being so shocked and being like almost mind blown, like um, little little teenager, like, whoa, this is the best thing I've ever seen. And then the, the fact that it was so like self-aware, um, I think really puts it in in like, in a, in a strange cultural space of the 90s where I think film and TV was becoming quite a lot self-aware. But just leading on from screen then, obviously I know what you did last summer and I, and I still know what you did last summer. Brilliant sequel titling, by the way. They really got lucky with that. Um, both compared to Scream, both kind of self-aware. However, I know you did last summer. It's quite a tribute to the 80s off horror films. Um, and what's interesting in I Know What You Did Last Summer is that the other rule, which is often unspoken because people should be proud of it, is that the best friend and black girl very often get killed off first. Um, and is that mentioned in the latest screen film when they say that, you know, the people of colour usually get killed off the earliest? I know in Prom Night it happens quite it, quite early as well. But that's another problem with the final girl as well. I feel like you get the girls lined up and you kind of can, like, group them, right? You've got the virginal girl, she'll last. You've got the best friend who's white, she'll last. You've got the girl that's promiscuous, she'll be first. And then you've got the brown girl, the black girl, they'll get killed off earlier as well. And it's a bit like films were like Sorority Row as well. I remember looking at the poster and thinking, oh, right, well, you're first, you're second, you're third, just based on who they are, which is terrible. And I don't feel like that has changed even now. No, I think is it. I think it's Scream Two that starts. All of them are like mixed up in my head because they're like merged yes. with scary, with scary movie films as well. So some of it, I'm like, I don't know which films. Oh with. God, I know I think, that problem. Is it oh, like? Yes. <laughs> so I think is it like Jada Pinkett Smith that dies in the second yeah, one? Um, second. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think there is like a, a tendency for for black characters to to die quite quickly. But I do think there's something about the '90s. Oh. Obviously, I grew up in the 90s and there was something quite like 
I don't know, something quite black about the 90s. There was a lot of sort of, a lot more than there is now, TV shows, films. And I think, um, obviously, I know what you did last summer too. You get sort of a black final girl, but then there's not been anything almost comparable because, you know, I think it's um, Brandy ends up surviving and I know what, I still know what you did last summer. But really since then, you know, we've had a few... I guess, final girls here and there that have been sort of of colour. But it really, the idea I I assumed sort of in the 90s, we were going to get sort of more and more representation and it would just kind of carry on. But I kind of feel like it's almost stilted and kind of gone in a circle, maybe. I don't know. Isn't there a lot of jokes, though? There's I don't know if it might be in a scary movie or something, but there's a lot of jokes (laughs) Mm -hmm. that, like... Black people aren't stupid enough to do the things that white people do anyway. They wouldn't be in the fucking forest. They wouldn't be in the abandoned mental hospital. They just wouldn't do it. You know, like that's a whole other thing of just like politics and like, you know, just social situations of like in the actual real world. Like if I was with my friends and when, oh, there's this abandoned hospital, do you want to go and like have a look and say out of a group of five, two of them were people of colour, they're probably not going to go. You know, if we got found by the police, who's going to get in the shit? That's a probably good not point. me. You know, <laughs> That's a good point. like they're they're going to be more safe and like conscious of like the things that they're doing, which like isn't an excuse to not have them in a film, of course. But like, mm. there is definitely a joke in some movie somewhere that is about the fact that like I wouldn't be doing it. Absolutely. You know, I just wouldn't be there. <laughs> but I do feel like horror in the '90s got sexier as much as we saw a lot of boob action back in the '70s. Um. I feel like the 90s did get sexier and it was all about, you know, the younger, skinnier women were becoming the final girls. Um, and it's interesting because in the in the noughties, we kind of started seeing a little bit of a flip of that. So like The Descent, for example, which I have to talk about because there's about six members of the Brian Pictures team that will lynch me if I do not. <laughs> and essentially... It's not really a slasher film and there's not really a final girl, but it's all about women surviving. You also had films like All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, for example, which flipped the final girl narrative that the final girl was actually the killer, which which I kind of loved. We see this in Screen 4 as well with compared to All the Boys Love Mandy Lane is that you have that twist where the final girl wants to appear as the final girl and it's that very manipulative kind of again playing on all oh, this poor woman survived this big massacre we've seen this recently in American Horror Story with um god whatever season it was I completely forget they all blur into one now and um, whether you have that kind of manipulative edge from women when they're like oh I want to be the final girl it's almost like it's an ambition in some ways which is again another playful um twist on the trope So let's kind of move even forward now to the 2010s, where I feel like the self-aware angle is developed from the 90s and it's more fun. Yeah, so a couple of examples. You have Dana Polk played by Kristen Connolly in A Cabin in the Woods, uh, Ready or Not. I don't remember her name, but it's Samara Weaving's character. (laughs) And obviously um, Suspiria, which I have watched because of Dakota Johnson. In reference to Dana Polk, you've got, like Kara said, this... Final girl tropes are being talked about. They're very self-aware. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about that trope becoming something that people are bringing into the narrative? Do you feel like the suspense is gone a bit from the final girl? Do you think it's disappearing? Yeah. 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 I think so. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say the suspense (laughs) is gone, but the enjoyment, I don't think for me, it's gone. Yeah. Like, I think 
the suspense like you know what's gonna happen but it's the same like when you watch a rom-com you know what's gonna happen mm-hmm. and I don't I like it's almost like I don't want them to change it I'm like ready or not I loved I thought I would hate it I thought it was just gonna be another trashy whatever film but I loved it even though I knew exactly what was going to happen at every moment and there's been a discussion going around like the last few days about some Netflix show and they say it's it's like a I don't know if she's like mixed race and he's in Georgia whatever that is and there are people are saying this is what happens when you have writers that are writing stuff just to be screenshotted I think we're having that problem in horror. Uh, like, I'm actually going to, like, mute things and delete my account if I have to see one more, like, <laughs> four-square thing of, like, the, like, shots of, um like, Tony Collette from Hereditary covered in blood, the one of Samara Weaving covered in blood, <laughs> um, the smile at the end of Midsummer, and something else covered in blood. I'm sick of the sight of it. Like, it, please just make something that is not for a screenshot and, like, not for just, like a moment to be like gift or like oh my god what an icon like love her like shut up <laughs> like it doesn't no. have to be about that and I think with with horror at the minute there's a real real problem with that and that's why the final girls aren't relatable like I, I wasn't so keen on ready or not I really wanted to like it but I saw it maybe a week after it came out so a lot of people had seen it already and hyped it and stuff and I just saw it and thought like there is nothing here that I have not seen before maybe the class thing but it was like too much yeah and just jumping off of what you said um because you mentioned like the screenshotable moments and that I think uh Midsummer is an interesting one to bring up I personally don't love it I think it's I have very deep feelings about full horror that I'm not going to get into but I think it's a really okay attempt at full horror there's better full horror but anyway I do like the concept of Florence Pugh's character as a final girl it is kind of a subversion because she is brainwashed and psychologically tortured into thinking she's happy with the outcome and I think that's interesting but the internet has like girl bossified her and turned that kind of shot into like a wow queen moment. And it's like, no, she is stuck in a cult of murderers. She just sanctioned the murder of her boyfriend. And I get he was shitty. He was a bad boyfriend, but he didn't deserve to die. Wake up with him. Don't kill him. So I, I think that's like Midsummer has set us back five years as far as the like screenshotted girl bossified final girl thing. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah, I think jumping off the back of that is I think there's that you can only ever get like if you get in discussion on the internet, there's only ever two types of film. It's like this film is really misogynistic and this film is like really empowered and there's representation in it. And sometimes we don't like you know, I, I never see, hardly ever see myself represented on screen. And a lot of the time, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for good stories mm. um, made by people who care. And I think a lot of this girl boss stuff, I think, is setting us back a little bit because I sometimes feel like any film that has a woman in now, it's like, yay, feminism. And it's like, and the film could be like really shit. Um, I just remember seeing Black Christmas. I mean, I didn't think, like the remake of Black Christmas, lots of people hated it. I thought it was meh. Uh, you know it was fine but the kind of press I saw around it was just too much for when you actually see what the film is it's just a meh film and then the the press around it was talking about like debates and feminism and representation I was like it's just a shitty little film it's not not that big of a deal why are we not 
telling different stories about different women. Like you say, like you aren't able to see yourself or relate to things because it's the same person every time. It's a young white woman who is going through a bad time with her boyfriend. I mean, I personally want on a t-shirt, don't kill him, break up with him, because I just think that's a brilliant <laughs> saying, Courtney. But we're just not, as much as the horror genre is repeating itself, we're doing nothing to like upgrade it almost. Like the final yeah. girl is not being upgraded. It's the same story. I mean, when you have people like, I'm not saying we've moved past the need to talk about women in horror, but I think it's undeniable that horror is one of the best genres for women to succeed in, in terms of behind the camera and in terms of characterization on screen. So we are making like massive progress and like the amount of, female directors that are making horror films whether they're about women or not like they're up there in like prestige horror you know Saint Maud is like up there now and when you have people like Jordan Peele doing stuff that's about things we've never discussed before like race or even stuff like we haven't really gone into I don't think like sexuality that much or yeah. like the trans experience I think you've got a bit of that in the 80s with some weird I mean, like, yeah where are they like, like move on to that exactly you know? yeah Get, get yeah. something else. And we can't just all wait for Jordan Peele to fetch out his next film and, like, know it's also going to be about yeah. the black experience. Like, we need more Jordan Peeles and more, you know, like, Nia DaCostas and more people like that that are talking about more than just gender because all you have to do is pick up a book that was written however many decades ago. There you go. That's about the final girl done. Like, it's, it's easy to find out. I think it's probably gone as far as it can go in its traditional sense you know it doesn't have to be a final girl why can't it be a final family why can't it be a final friendship group and it's let's just evolve it and move on I mean we've I still think like the stories we were telling in the 70s we're still telling now and it's just with with some iPhones thrown in and you know the occasional reference okay so rounding up the episode quick fire round who is your favorite final Chloe's shaking her head (laughs) who is your favorite final girl um Courtney give us your answer uh, I think I'm gonna go Sally from Texas Chainsaw just because the the hysterical like panic she has at the end when she gets away. I think that can't be beat. That entire like last scene of Texas Chainsaw, I think, is maybe the best scene in horror. So it's a good bit bold statement. I agree. Um, Amy, who's your final girl? I'm um, just get like I think I'm just gonna say Sydney from Scream, only because she's just so like ingrained in my psyche and my love of horror. And, like, Neve Campbell's an actress. Like, nobody else does, like, pained, watery eye. Like, <laughs> that kind of whatever she does. Nobody does that quite as good, I think. Uh, Chloe, did you decide? I just Googled it then, yeah. Who's <laughs> <laughs> my favourite final girl? <laughs> no, well, actually, Courtney just, like, thinged my brain then. Um, Stretch from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, I really enjoy. I think that film Ooh, is so stupid and yes. fun. Um, she's really cool. I liked her a lot. Great one. So I'm going to say that. Amazing choices. Um, I'm actually going to go for Sydney as well from Scream, um, just because I think it's incredible how someone can keep getting stalked by serial killers and uh, handle it so beautifully and well. And I'm really looking forward to Scream 5, or is it SCR5AM, however they've they've put that together. Um, And just to touch on what you just said, Chloe, I think the reason why we love Final Girls in horror is that it is horrifying, but it's also fun and it's silly and it's 
kind of like a guilty pleasure in itself, which leads me on to promote in the next session, which is all about guilty pleasures. However, thank you guys so much um, for joining us today. It's been lovely to have you um, on the podcast, uh, Amy and Chloe. It's just been a dream to have you both. I'm so happy you said mm-hmm. yes and to hear your amazing thoughts on the genre. I want to go rewatch everything all over again. Maybe not midsummer, but you know. <laughs> I'll leave that for another time So welcome Ari, Chloe and Jess You've all been on the show before It's lovely to have you here all together As a little mini Avengers style team For our guilty pleasures <laughs> um, So yes, today we are going to be talking about Guilty pleasure films So what is a guilty pleasure film? They can be described as being OTT Badly made Predictable Dumb Sappy Badly reviewed tank to the box office and essentially we are embarrassed of liking it therefore it is a pleasure that gives us guilt um probably a catholic come up with this i'm assuming to be quite fair it's <laughs> seeming very catholic to be honest um neha you've got some genres and issues that are usually coming up in guilty pleasure films please share those with us yeah so first up rom-coms or sometimes referred to as chick flicks i hate that term i hate that um they're the worst they are the worst uh yeah they're seen as dumb or basic or if you enjoy them you too might be dumb or basic which is always feels like a personal i mean probably um yeah (laughs) all the time they often make fun of women they're can be predictable and they reinforce stereotypes um and can be quite sexist so that's rom-coms then you've got um, badly slash cheaply made slash creature feature disaster films. So um, movies with like not great special effects and sometimes feels like they're gatekeeping for low budget movies and um, filmmakers and that kind of thing. Um, so that's another one. And then, of course, you've got like over the top slapstick comedy things that people deem unintelligent. Um, often you get really offensive stereotypes for specific characters well you've got like those like action films that can reinforce toxic masculinity so that's another one. Oh yes um i know that means well, i was about to say you never hear the term guilty pleasure applied to anything that is sort of male coded like action films absolutely and you know what i'm pretty sure that me and ari today are going to talk about the fast and furious saga <laughs> I am sure me and Ari are also going to talk about showgirls. So that's the thing about um, a lot of, I think Fast and Furious gets shit on in terms of like male coded action films because they're not exactly like the most, they are big budget, but they're not exactly the most well-made. So we asked all of our lovely um, guests here today and some of our fans from Rian Pictures to let us know what their guilty pleasure films were. And we have a lot um, and they're all very different. So here we go. Can't wait to hear. I know. Dirty Dancing, Zombieland, Barbie Nutcracker, Pearl Harbor, The Fault in Our Stars, La La Land, Miss Congeniality 1 and 2, Rocky, all of the Rockies, Easy A, She's All That, Batman and Robin, any Mary Kate and Ashley film, My Best Friend's oh, Wedding. Holiday and the Sun is an absolute... <laughs> classic. I um, say that not even... <laughs> Guilty. No irony there. No irony. Casablanca, Son of Rambo, The Craft, Rock of Ages, Year One, Elizabeth Town, Rampage, Twilight. Twilight came up a lot, by the way. <laughs> Mamma Mia, Click, or anything with Adam Sandler, someone said. <laughs> While You Were Sleeping, 10 Things I Hate About You, Titanic, 
all of the high school musicals, including that one with Ashley Tisdale, I think they mean the, the that actual is, one that she I did. I believe all yeah. of them. Sharpay's <laughs> Big Adventure, I think. Sharpay's yeah, Big Adventure. That's it. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And last but not least, Pitch Perfect. So mm. a lot of a mixture, not from comms, but some interesting ones. Absolutely fascinated by whoever listed Casablanca as a guilty pleasure. I want to speak to them for an hour. Honestly. Me too. I am very intrigued. So my question to you guys to kick off the conversation is, what are your guilty pleasure films? Um, Jess, please, please start us off. I'm like a very big rom-com girl right but I have to say I it depends on what I need emotionally at the time like I feel like mine have drastically changed within lockdown because I feel like I've regressed into my 18 year old self living back with my mother uh in need of like some basic romance 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 um so I've been watching a lot of like the kissing booth and the the teenage dramas like the kissing booth and um to all the boys I ever loved all of that so like I'm like take me back to school when life was easy and I just like fancied a boy yeah um so I've been like I've regressed in that way like I've gone back from like Bridget Jones back over to the teenage room you're fully in the Bridget Jones zone of when she's listening to All By Myself on the sofa. Yeah, definitely. Like vibes. And that is, I think, one of the ultimate vibes. I love that. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it's, it's interesting what you said about the feeling it gives you as well. I love that. Oh my God, yeah. But so, like, so sometimes I, I need that's... romance and then sometimes I need like, I basically, I, I do a lot of musicals for a living. So when I'm working and I'm in a musical, I don't need musicals. When I'm not working, I'm like, give me a Mia, like give me Mamma Mia any day of the week. Like just makes me happy and I just want to be on stage again. Like, so I have watched like a few musicals in lockdown, obviously because the theatres have been closed. Um, But yeah, like I, it depends on the feeling. Sometimes I'm like, I just need to start. Wars. <laughs> I just need Star Wars. I need it. Or like the Dark Knight or that whole series. I'm like, I just need darkness. <laughs> I just need darkness. <laughs> Chloe, what is one of your guilty pleasure films? Well, I'm very like I said, I am very um and have been for like the last decade quite strict on I don't feel guilty about any of the things that yes, I like. I, I hate that. the phrase guilty pleasure because I just think you should just enjoy things for what specifically like it's fair enough to criticize or go into criticism of what a thing is. But if you enjoy a thing, you enjoy a thing. But I mean, I have so many films that are like in the sort of guilty pleasure list, like Showgirls, me and Ariane have discussed a little bit before this about how much we love that film and that is sort of your typical guilty pleasure film but I am unabashed about saying I don't feel guilty about enjoying it or any of these sorts of films I love Showgirls because it's a cinematic masterpiece Showgirls it's like a masterpiece of shit because I think the people (laughs) enjoy it because it's it's a it's a really remarkable mix of a great concept and everyone else the actors the set design the costumes are doing amazing jobs it's just what is fascinating about Showgirls to me is that it's what a very specific man thinks women sound like when they're alone 
And there is just ah. such great camping humor in actual women um, portraying this dialogue and then giving it their own spin. And then just, you know, sort of every other 5,000 factors of what makes showgirls showgirls. But why do you think that particular film has earned the status of a guilty pleasure? I think it has a huge cult following. One, it's like gorgeous. The production design is actually just mental. Like, oh, it's, it's beautiful. The budget is over the top. It's we were talking about this the other day about all the, you know, the neon dolphins yeah. and, the... <laughs> the, and the sex in the pool that just looks oh. like she's a dolphin. It's all very ridiculous. And um, I think at the time it didn't really, obviously like it didn't really take, it got a bunch of Razzies and stuff, but slowly but surely, I think especially in like queer communities, it's found a sort of life of its own. And, and this is such about, a, a great yeah. thing about um, 90s guilty pleasures is like with sure. this and with uh, Drew Barrymore's Poison Ivy and like a load of others is you get sort of guilty pleasure films, quote unquote, who find a whole new audience on video. You know, once it's been released and it's like a couple of years into its existence, you know, there's people who find it and just love it. I think as well, like what you mentioned there, I think that one thing I have noticed is that the queer community, they do have these kind of, I feel like they are the ones that make the cult classics. And like you say, things are like musicals and things like showgirls as well. Yeah, there's definitely such a, yeah, that, that is a huge part of it, definitely. It's like Rocky Horror, isn't it? Rocky Horror is... Yeah. Mm. perfect example but I feel no guilt about Rocky Horror like I think there's a thing of at least for me when it becomes you know a guilty genuine guilt is like when something is is like overtly misogynistic or quote-unquote for lack of a better term problematic and you enjoy it but at the same time like that shouldn't really stop anyone from either enjoying it or thinking critically about it without you know the the whole like you can think critically about something and still hate it or love it. Yeah, like, okay. you know, complexity, guys. Neha, why don't you share with us your guilty pleasure? And I have a big fat feeling it's going to be a rom-com. <laughs> well, no, Am I wrong? I mean, Am I wrong? So, well, I don't have any shame, so I don't think... Oh, any- <laughs> so true. Yeah. What's so that I don't- like? What's that like? Well, I just, I don't really care if people think the films I watch are cross. Like, I just don't. If that if they did, then all I then I would have succumbed to peer pressure years ago, and I'd only be watching Quentin Tarantino. Like Ooh, I don't yeah. care, but I feel, I feel like guilty the, about liking those movies. To be honest, oh, are we, really? are we, we're going to get on that. We're going to get on that. <laughs> but I think because I never really felt like I. Oh God, I'm about to do that thing that Jughead does. Where he's like, I'm weird. I'm weirdo. I'm, you know that <laughs> we don't understand. Like, I'm we, not yeah, but like, I never <laughs> really, I never really kind of subscribed to what was cool because I never really understood what was cool. Yeah. I think the only thing that's come out in recent years that I think I, I don't often love being like, oh, I love that film, and most people love this film is set it up just because the valid criticism behind the fact that <gasps> you had Lucy Liu's character and you had. Um, Tay Diggs' character, who you could have done really interesting things in, given that they were both people of colour, but the whole film became a very cliché thing about two people with great chemistry, but that's the only one that recently yeah. I feel like I... But that's, that's exactly what Ari said about you can still criticise something and love it, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know if I have any pressures because I just don't care. I mean, maybe Jersey Shore, that's the longest... I feel like that's... <laughs> 
to that end the, there's stuff like for example like bling empire i have a lot of tr- trouble watching but i love but because like <laughs> as an asian person who doesn't have a lot of money it's really hard to see all the representation now you see of you know asians in mainstream media is crazy rich asians bling empire it's a bunch of rich people and i have, have you know as somebody who thinks a lot of rich people are morally <laughs> reprehensible i don't think yeah. um it's fun to watch i love the drama but that does send a message about what kind of things are still being made and how much room we can make yeah, within the industry definitely. to make other things. My, it's funny because I would just want to touch on what you said, Ari, as well about like finding Tarantino films guilty. I've got like two kind of layers to my guilty pleasures. Like my, mm. for me, like as a filmmaker, I feel like when I tell people, oh, my favourite film is She's the Man starring Amanda Bynes. Um, Which is a great film. <laughs> just yeah, hugging her heart there. Like the reason why I feel like guilty from that is that I think being a filmmaker, I think sometimes people think, oh, your favorite film must be like something really prestigious. And for me, like for me, I absolutely love She's the Man. Like relating back to what you said, Jess, I watched She's the Man where I didn't get picked to play in my football team. And Mm -hmm. it was Easter breaks. We had like two weeks of school and back in blockbuster days. And my dad was like, right, let's go to blockbuster. Let's get a film. Let's cheer you up. And I chose She's the Man because I was like, oh my God, it's the girl from the Amanda show this is going to be so cool and I didn't know who Chan Tatum was back then by the way and but yes yeah, so she's the man like that's one of my favorite films of all time and I think the guilty pleasure connotation to it is that they're like really you like some slapstick film that's yeah it's based on a Shakespeare film but you know it's it's silly so that's that one side the other side is what you said Ari Films like Tarantino, films like Martin Scorsese, films that now are being very challenged because of how they were made or because of what they are. And there's that film bro attachment to it that people say things like, oh, Fight Club, oh, if you like Fight Club or if you like Pulp Fiction, you're a film bro. I love those films and I'm not a film bro. And it's just one of those things. And like, tell me more about how you feel about that because you feel the guilt towards that too, don't you? Oh, completely. I went to a film school, which is the worst sentence I think anybody will ever say on this podcast. And I'm I'm just surrounded by film bros constantly. Yes. I yes. allegedly am a film bro. All my friends say so. And I'm like, you know what? I'll take it. I'll take um, it. <laughs> but the guilt that I feel, I think it's because um, you associate those films with a certain kind of person, a sort of like film bro boogeyman that's like, you know, oh, he, he has like three Fight Club posters. He's a fuck boy. Um, but then I love Fight Club so much. I only have one. <laughs> yeah, I have one as well. I'm like, you know, a third of a fuck boy, which is fine. Um, it's not fine. But, um, but I think the connotation there just becomes, again, I think it goes back to like a gendered thing where like, I feel like I'm not allowed to like these things because the audience that vocally love it are predominantly male. Whereas films like American Psycho, which is again, made by a woman critically lauded, um, but still loved by the same audience. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't feel the same sort of shame because of that. But I feel zero shame about Scorsese. I feel a lot of shame about Tarantino because him and his old foot thing. And um, mm. it's a, it's, it's, he, he, like, you know, sometimes there's a certain point where I can like something, but I could also understand that, oh, he's been doing the same thing over and over and it's fine, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that whole like film bro connotation. But I think when you lean into it, like what Chloe was saying, just, 
leaning into stuff and accepting that you can enjoy it and think critically about it um what's stopping you from really you know vocally liking once upon a time in hollywood as much as the other film bros you know that, that's it and it's it's the variety and choice too and it's just interesting like how the, the it's like it's like a different shame like you said no about not having any shame like i'm still learning i'm just i'm studying brene brown um <laughs> and it's, it's just it's just tapping into that i think now you've got some interesting research for us haven't you about how guilty pleasure films relate to the age you are when that you first saw them please share us more i'm fascinated about this yeah so this is like wider Rian pictures team research because we have a research team um yeah we do it's very cool but essentially the older the person the older the guilty pleasure film they like so early 90s babies tend to like films from the 80s and 90s or the ones that they call them their own guilty pleasures late 90s babies like 2000 films and generally they often come from that cult classic era of the 80s 90s and early 2000s so i guess big could be because they feel nostalgic, they hold a special place in our hearts and are linked to our childhood, like maybe there's something there. Um, and they can remind, remind us of a certain time in our lives. So again, that kind of comfort and escapism. It's definitely why I watch 80s rom-coms because <laughs> I guess they remind me of a time in my life where I was living in New York. That's not a thing. Um, <laughs> It's not, I know, that's, I was never Meg Ryan, unfortunately. It's, it's like a scene where you say, like, you mourn for a life you never had. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Which sounds really sad. I mean, for everyone listening, I am very happy with my life. Like, I don't, <laughs> yeah, like, it's totally, it's not, it's not that deep. But yeah. And they also, they tend to encapsulate an era within the film. So, like, if you think about the Gremlins, very 80s. Uh, but yeah, that's the research. That's really interesting. I wonder if that then um, contributes to the sort of correlation between quote-unquote guilty pleasure films and quote-unquote cult films sort of having a bit of a mix between the two. I wonder if that Mm -hmm. idea of things encapsulating a certain time are also why people are really drawn to them. Like, you know, we've given the example of Showgirls or High School Musical. Like They are very, like, of their specific time. Yeah. yeah. And definitely. I definitely feel that with Pocahontas. Oh, oh yeah. 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 Like, Pocahontas is, I forgot to, I can't believe I didn't say that. Like, <laughs> I've made life decisions based on Pocahontas. Like, I've been like, do I take this job or do I turn this job down? And I'm like, should I choose the smoothest course, steady as the... I'm like, I was going to say, are you talking to a tree as well? Like, is yeah, that? Oh, like, and I <laughs> feel it. like I'm like, listen with your heart, you will understand. I'm like, oh my god, sorry, my dog is barking. But like, <laughs> I, I associate that with being. Um, it, it was one of the first songs that I, I sang as a kid. Um, and the first songs that I found my voice in, Colors of the Wind. And um, I remember the day that my mom came in and, and gave me the, the videotape to Paul Contest and I, the colors and everything about the colors and this the spiritual side of it. Like, I don't know, I was just, it just, color and nostalgia really gets me. So I often, when I feel a bit like, I just want to feel like a kid again, I'm like, Paul Contest, on you go. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but um, yeah, Paul Contest and the music is so beautiful. And I think moving and, I don't know, it just always makes me feel really... It's interesting, like, how you mentioned Pocahontas and you have that kind of vivid memory of being given the video. And, like, I mentioned She's the Man, and I've got a vivid memory of going to Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And, like, when Neha said it's about, like, a specific point in your life, obviously some of the kind of... The, some of the films we got 
are all very they're all very targeted to teen girl audiences and I personally feel like there's a massive vendetta against teen girls not so much teen girls but tween girls that kind of stage between you when you're not a child but you're not a teenager you're in that kind of middle ground and that's basically pop culture picks anything that teenage girls particularly like whether like you know regardless of its actual quality and then chooses that as their point to sort of you know target teen girls are daring to like anything or daring to exist that's also interesting though with things like twilight which i grew up on and i remember the first time i saw it you know like in theaters and stuff but now it's again taken on a life of its own it's having a little renaissance harry styles famously once when he was asked about his teenage girl fans and he said that teenage girls don't like lie about what they like like if they yeah, like they have you. a bullshit detector which is exactly what yeah. yeah so that idea of like if they like you then they're going to support you and they don't act too cool and That's the fact true. that people always use that as a reason to sort of belittle them is just doesn't make any yeah. sense to me. In fact, they, that's like a good thing that they don't. I mean, look at the Spice Girls and the Spice Girls movie. Like, I'm still a diehard Spice, Spice Girls fan. I went to see them a couple of years ago and cried, like, because I didn't see them when I was a kid. That movie was insane. Like, that whole... Like, the bus sequence where they jump over yeah. the bridge. Oh, I think about uh, it when you can just tell that it's the, the little toy bus versus the actual gun, like, artistry. But I think it's interesting, like, as you said, like, I, as a kid, believed in the Spice Girls. I was like, girl power, like, yeah, bitch. Oh, do like, if you, yeah. My mum tells a story about if you asked me when I was two years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? My answer was one of the Spice Girls. Yeah. I love that. Like, that's, yeah, a prime example, I think, and how that's transcended still to the, to over the years and how the nostalgia is still just as kind of real for it. So obviously we spoke about Twilight, we spoke about um, High School Musical briefly as well. Um, the Hunger Games got mentioned as well, which is another interesting Ooh. part. And again, The first one I think is objectively a very good film and a very good adaptation. I am with books. you on that. Yes. And let's talk a little bit about musicals. So Jess, I'm obviously going to hedge your way here. Quite a few musicals on here. I mean, I do regard Dirty Dancing as a musical just because there's yeah. so many musical numbers in there and I love the acting yeah. musical as well. So Dirty Dancing has come up, La La Land has come up, um, what else is coming? I was going to say Batman and Robin, but that's not a musical. Pitch Perfect. <laughs> Mamma Mia has come up. Pitch Perfect's come up. So Jess, tell us, why do you think people think musicals are a guilty pleasure? What it is about them that they don't scream from the top of Rosemary Topping, Northeast it's reference the- there, that they love them? <laughs> it's the old school, like, musicals are for nerds. Like, it's the old <laughs> stereotype. And let me tell you, right, and I think... Within the art form, and this is something as I um, that I feel as an actor within musical theatre, right? I've found it. I've auditioned for TV and film. I've auditioned for for straight acting roles or whatever. And there's such a, a pigeonhole within the UK when hiring actors, musical theatre actors, that musical theatre actors can't cross over yeah. into serious stuff, right? And this is something that doesn't exist in the US because people cross. It's really interesting. Diggs, Tear Diggs is like musical theatre. Yeah. Married to Adina Menzel. Like we've got all of these Broadway actors crossing over. In the UK, less so. I mean, it's we're pushing out of it now. Like people are crossing over a bit more, but there is always, it's not like a, is it a snobbery? I don't know. Like there's I just- I think it is. I think it's snobbery, yeah. Let me tell you, 
it takes so much more skill. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. <laughs> when you're a musical theatre actor, you're not only acting, you're singing, singing oh, and dancing. You're acting through song, you're acting through dance, and you're acting through script, right? Actually, within this lockdown, I've just, because I've not been able to do it, I've not been, yeah. the theatres have been closed. I'm like, I love musical theatre and it's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah, you can tell because I'm like practically singing. I was going to say, you were singing that <laughs> then. I was, I was taking it like, back. Please get me on the stage again. But um, no, yeah. I love it because I'm an avid musical theatre watcher. So yeah, I, I enjoy being the audience. I love it. And I get such power from it. But I don't, the thing is like, you can go and lose yourself in a musical. You'll come away singing the songs, which again is another way of like expressing yourself after watching and experiencing a musical. Like you continue to kind of relive it via like singing the songs and like doing the dance. Do you know what I mean? Like it's never, it's like it goes further than just watching the film. So yeah, so we've obviously covered musicals, we've covered um, the kind of tween audiences. Neha, you are a rom-com connoisseur. Why do you hate the term chick flick and why do you think we need to get rid of it and put it in the bin? Because I actually know a lot of guys that love a rom-com and they're straight white men. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not proud of knowing a lot of straight white men, by the way. <laughs> I, I think that's exactly that their eleven of it is exactly why we should retire the term. I think it's just because it's laced in misogyny. You know, mm. it's just it feels like a term that just exists to make women feel bad about, or not even women, like you said, anyone feel bad about liking a rom com. Because I think the reason that I love rom coms, and this is maybe relevant, maybe not relevant, is essentially because their story is about love. And love exists across genres. You get them in sci-fi films, you get them in horror films, war films. Love, like, exists everywhere. So it's specifically the fact that I think it exists within rom-coms to, to be the plot that really ticks people off. And, and for some reason, there's this idea that that is only... the that we should be guilty for liking that or that we're cringy or that we're cheesy or that, that there's something... But I'm like, go watch a war film. That There is love in a war film. I, I love what you said, Neha, that you can have a romantic story in any genre. I mean, you look at horror so films, true. Yeah. sci-fi films, like Inception, not Inception, um, Interstellar, Interstellar. It's very much a, a story about love between, you know, I, I'm not going to quote it. Because Anne Hathaway. I actually love Anne the Hathaway in that film. Dimensions. That was that's like, the one. Yes, that's exactly. The that's I, I, I love Christopher Nolan films and I feel guilty about it. Like what I said about like a Tarantino and Scorsese, I feel like lately, the past 12 months, probably because of last year with releasing Tenet, yeah. I feel like Christopher yeah. Nolan has now become a guilty pleasure to me. And I oh God, have no. loved this man for so long. Sorry, I love this man. I love this man for <laughs> so long. I love his films. But I do feel like there's this new surge of maybe younger people, because I know I'm getting into the 30s, guys, just saying. Um, but I know that there's this surge now where people are like, oh, God, Inception, The Dark Knight, was such terrible films. And Ari, I know, I've known you for quite a long time now, and I know that this is yeah. something that we feel passionately about. Yeah. <laughs> Why, 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 why? why? Um, the thing that's interesting about Interstellar and Inception and uh, most of his films, like my favourite of his is The Prestige and a lot of Christopher Nolan's films, as I've been watching them back over lockdown, is that they're all very expository, which isn't an issue, but sometimes it really is. And um, the thing with Tenet that co- stirred up controversy was obviously surrounding its release during a pandemic, which obviously like, bro, I'm not going to die just to see Robert Pattinson. I did that in 2008. So <laughs> like, 
but again with Tenet, <laughs> Tenet there's a lot of things wrong with it there's a lot of things wrong with it I like to compare it to a Fast and Furious film without the joy um but I like I love Tenet because it's sexy and I, I I love watching things that are sexy I was just about to bring up how I guess with films like you know Christopher Nolan's films will say like um <laughs> I'm so sorry to bring up Pedro Pascal when nobody asked, which is like my job. Right Honey, now. bring um, it up anytime, anywhere, any place, anyhow. Like, things like Triple Frontier, things like Kingsman. Some of that shit is I I find it I it's I find it sexy. It's a superficial reason. Like I feel guilty for enjoying things <laughs> at a superficial level, but I shouldn't. I know I shouldn't. Hey, um, why should it's you? very if feminist. You enjoy it, I think uh, to like enjoy things for. I love all the. Pedro love I, I it makes me very happy um but uh thank you in the chat but um yeah no we should it's I think if men can enjoy Megan Fox and Transformers you know as much as they do as much as I do as much as I do um I'm allowed to enjoy Triple Frontier guilt-free because of all the hot dudes in the jungle um, all right, right. Aryan bags of money exactly it's funny because films that come out tomorrow films that come out next week maybe one day there will be someone's guilty pleasure film so it's it's all universal thank you so much guys for joining us today it's been absolutely lovely having you on the show and uh and thank you to all of our people that tuned in as well it was lovely to hear um some of your guilty pleasures um it's just made me laugh it has just made me laugh okay well it's lovely to have you all here it's uh, really great to be joined by you guys um this uh, episode is quite a chunky one um got a lot to discuss in it um we're going through the past 10 years of women in film both behind the camera but also in front of the camera as well so we're going to be talking about some of the movements that have happened we're also going to be talking about the oscars as well as much as the oscars aren't the most correct um award show it is one of the biggest ones that really does dictate essentially how many film studios and companies hire women and hire other women as well so we're going to talk about those too let's begin essentially with what kind of change this decade so we're speaking we were going to do 2021 to 2011 but then last year pretty much got scrapped to be quite honest so we've kind of missed out a whole year there too but one thing that particularly happened this past 10 years is that women really broke into the superhero genre so we started having um larger larger female characters when it come to the larger films so black widow for example wonder woman captain marvel um now these are not exactly groundbreaking because they are all white women and the films that they were in they were still the side characters particularly black widow who still hasn't had her own film i think it's all a big i think it's all a big conspiracy theory but so black widow is pretty much one of the first people that was in the superhero genre that was a woman that was kind of kicking ass and taking names and doing that retrospect and then obviously wonder woman kind of did that on the dc side biggest change with the wonder woman side is that it was directed by a female director as well and then obviously captain marvel and that grossed over one billion so it was only that was the seventh marvel film to reach that milestone and also it was huge considering what it was and wonder woman also had a massive budget as well question for you guys is do you think people actually paid attention to that or do you reckon because it's such a mound driven genre in film it was kind of just swooped under the carpet 
I think pe- I think um, if I remember right, people were trying to literally boycott Captain Marvel, and people were trying to give it bad Rotten t- Tomato view- um, reviews, and they were being really horrible about all men, white men, yeah. <laughs> were being so horrible about it. They were trying to sort of like sabotage it before it even came out, and then there was the whole campaign of uh, the hatred of Brie Larson wasn't there, where you know, she was just bullied beyond belief online and people were trying to pick apart interviews which she was in tried to start beefs in between the actual Avengers cast and things like that um so I think that just goes to show just how mean you know people can be when it comes to having a female superhero um and oh also the fact that she was supposed to be the strongest Avenger and yeah they didn't like that did they They didn't like that (laughs) didn't like that at all I think the responses um was really odd because it's like I'm presuming these people sort of like you know comic book nerds it's like it's not like they just made up a female character to piss people off like she's in the comics so I don't know I mean it would it would be a bizarre reaction even if it wasn't but you know from that sort of like comic book bro kind of (laughs) angle I don't know I just thought just a bit odd really I feel like as great as it was to kind of have these characters as well like into that genre they still didn't have their own films and as much as like we had we had Wonder Woman which was you know I I thought it was a good film but then it kind of felt like it didn't start any conversation it was kind of like it ticked a box it kind of felt like these studios ticked a box like okay we did the lady film let's move on now back to the other 27 films and projects we have going on that have you know white male straight leads as the as the lead so it was I feel happy it happened in the past decade do I still feel like there's massive room to go absolutely do I do I feel like tv are doing a better job yes and so as much as I don't look on the past 10 years and think oh yeah that was really amazing I think yeah Captain Marvel was a great thing for the superhero genre and Wonder Woman was great too but they're two films in 10 years 10 years I mean how many films come out every month let's be real um so yeah, there's that. And then Neha, there obviously was another big thing that happened in the past 10 years as well that kind of changed how we look to actresses as well, particularly directors too. What is it? It's Me Too. Me Too. Um, yeah, so obviously we know of Me Too when it burst onto the scene and it was October 2017. Um, was it not that long ago? Well, I mean, so it's, that's the thing though. So... I mean, yeah. it, hit, it hit the mainstream in October 2017, obviously, when you had the expose in the New York Times about um, Harvey Weinstein and actresses and former Weinstein employees came forward with the fact that he had uh, sexually harassed and abused them. But that in itself is also not when the Me Too movement started. It started in 2006 um, with Tarana Burke, who founded a nonprofit organization called Just Be. It's also important to remember that Tarana Burke is a black woman um and that's a whole co-opted thing that I want to kind of touch on but and her movement within her non-profit organization which was about serving um survivors of sexual harassment and abuse was the Me Too movement um the Me Too movement as we knew it kind of was born on Twitter because Alyssa Milano tweeted um it was something like wasn't it that women who have suffered from or have been sexually harassed like comment on this tweet with me too or something so I think because of that people kind of associate it with just Hollywood and I'm not sure she ever kind of credited it I don't know if she may have um yeah I, I don't think she did but um it really is it really brought to light the fact that Hollywood as big as it is and is 
kind of encompassing as it is really had so many problems systemically which we all know of it wasn't like in 2017 we all woke up to the fact there were systemic issues in Hollywood but it really kind of brought it out into focus in a way that people couldn't ignore it anymore yeah it's it's irritating that someone works so hard on that for a long time and then overnight it just become a Twitter sensation. I mean, it's it's obviously fantastic we start talking about it now. Um, and it's ridiculous that it only happened four years ago and actually it was, it's now starting to be mocked as well. Like I've seen films recently as a film festival director that mock it and I just think we, we're not there yet, pal. We haven't actually got to that point where we're so far away from it that we can actually look mm. back and laugh. Um, the original tweet was, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me me too as a reply to this tweet so it didn't start as a hashtag it didn't start as a movement it was just simply Alyssa Milano sending that she wanted people to start talking about it and it went crazy overnight and but let's talk about the what actually changed in the industry from that so obviously one of the biggest things was Harvey Weinstein and the Weinstein company just dissolved disapparated I'm making up words left right and center today so it went overnight He's not the only man in Hollywood that did that. A lot more stories come out after that. But how did this actually affect women? And how did it make positive change in action? Because as we've said before, like on this show, me and Neha talk all the time, it's great to have a conversation, but where's the action? Like we can talk all the time about how important things are, but where's the action behind it? And I feel like the biggest things that come from the Me Too movement is that people started to pay attention to whether films were actually directed by women. People started to pay attention to whether female roles were actually worthy or whether they were just there as the hot girl in the horror film or the hot girl in the action film and that kind of difference changed from there what do you guys think about the me too movement in how it actually affected positive change in the industry is there any particular cases you think were really good or do you think it was not even that great and we're still working on things I think one of the things that I've noticed from an acting background is now if um, in any form of, of situation, the way that we kind of approach sex scenes and anything sexual is completely different now. You know, you have choreographers, you have people who put those boundaries in place, which I feel like weren't there before like I remember going to a casting previously and being told you're going to be paired with someone and you're going to kiss him. And not being informed about that until Ooh, getting weird. outside the room. It's really strange, especially when you're literally like, oh, hi, I've just had a tuna sandwich. But <laughs> like, it's, it's also like, it's a really sort of a, a strange, a strange concept. But I'm really glad that that's in there now, especially, you know, in, in film and TV, when we are seeing these scenes a lot more, it seems to be what people are, are wanting. But these intimacy coaches, I feel like that's a real positive step to empower people who are going to be on set and to empower the women to, to be able to say, actually, no, do you know what? I'm I'm not comfortable. Yes, it's an element of the job, but those boundaries, I feel like, have only come about after the Me Too movement. I never knew of anybody being an intimacy coach or you know, choreographing that prior to the Me Too movement. Um, I don't know if anybody else has found anything else that's that's positive from it in in that. So that's created a new job role, I guess, which is a real positive. Yeah, I was going to add to um, what you were saying about the Me Too movement. That I watched a documentary by um, someone called I was I was googling it, so that's why my eyes keep going up. <laughs> I like it. 
is uh, Drew Dixon. And this was actually her documentary coincided just before the Me Too movement came out. So I think it amplified the movement. And she um, came out to um, kind of had not issues. She has accused, I will say accused because I don't think it's gone to court, Russell Simmons of sexual harassment. And it was a really interesting documentary. I watched it, I think, last year. And her her documentary and, and her coincided with the whole Me Too movement coming out. And what I've noticed is that um, especially um, actresses of colour are actually having conversations about things that you never, ever, ever would have heard before. And I think because of that, it's had a ripple effect across, the, especially um, amongst the Black community, of having really difficult conversations about sexual harassment. And I think um, it's opened up opportunities for us to speak about things that wouldn't have been spoken about before, um, especially as a black, brown, you know, woman of ethnic minority, you just wouldn't speak about that. You you were usually like the last at the bottom of the list anyway, even for a casting call, to then now make an accusation. So the fact that um, Lupita Nyong'o came out and said, she had experienced it for me I felt especially as a creative so much more empowered to share stories that perhaps were not shared before it wasn't just the oh we're talking about slavery or we're talking about racism I'm talking about my body my sexuality and how I feel and I'm being treated and I I found that extremely um, powerful especially with Lupita's story I found her um, vulnerability and what she shared extremely powerful you say and, let, and let's be real, like the Me Too movement that predominantly was white women that were coming forward, which obviously is it's important. But at the same time, there's a wider conversation to be had. And it's it was unfair that, you know, women of colour slipped through the cracks, really. We didn't see more of that happening. There's been various things over the past few years. So obviously, that 82 women marched at Cannes as well because they were protesting that the, the exclusion of women directors. Only 82 women had ever walked the steps. This year, we're breaking the record. Not we, not us directly. Um, Golden Globes are breaking the record for having three women nominated for Best Director. It took them this long. It seems to be that we're getting all these firsts happening, but it's still only three, four years ago. Like We're not even talking like the early 10s. Do we call them the 10s? Is that what we call the 10s now? If it's like 2010s. It feels weird, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's bizarre. Mm. It's bizarre. Um, but Neha, you've obviously got a great thing to talk about here with um, Selma. With Selma? Do we mean Ava DuVernay in general, or specifically Selma? Yeah, should we just spend the next two hours talking about Ava? I think we should. Let's go for it. Yes, yes. Let's <laughs> go for it. Let's go for it. rest of the show's cancelled. Just about her, isn't it? No, but she... Like, we've said it before, but she has a she has a bit of a habit of um, just making history, doesn't she? Because in 2015, she became the first black woman to be nominated for Best Director at the Golden Globes for Selma. And we've talked about the Golden Globes before, but they really are an odd one. Like, I just, I, I, I don't know how to, but that's I a whole other thing. I think they should be scrapped. I think they should be scrapped. So that's a whole one. But not to take away from her being um, nominated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean like, that's she great to get matter. rid of it. <laughs> yeah, no. But maybe in states and black voters within the HFPA, maybe that could be, yeah. could be a good thing to do. Um, but yeah, and then obviously the, Mart- um, the Selma, which is the Martin Luther King bi- biopic, also received a Best Picture nod at the Oscars, making Ava the first black woman director to have her film nominated in this category. Bearing in mind, this was like 2015. So it's great, but also like we say, it's taken such a long time for this to happen. Um, 
And then in 2016, Ava DuVernay achieved yet another milestone when she became the first woman of color and black woman to helm a live action film with a $100 million plus budget for a wrinkle in time. Ava's just done incredible things. And the fact that she, I mean, didn't she not pick up a camera until she was like 32? Mm. It's not only that she's like creating the way for race, creating the way for gender and age as well. Like you don't have to be a certain age to do what you're doing. I think it's amazing. It really is. I think what it is about Ava that stands out is, yeah, like you said, it's not only the fact that she's a director, but she's opening doors. She's actively changing the industry, um, which is which is amazing. And I think also uh, she did like a live during the last lockdown uh, where she talked about, um, oh God, the film just come out of my head, about the, the Exonerated Six. Um, oh, yeah, five, five, sorry. Five. Yeah, five, not six. Um, yeah, so the, what was the film called? Um, when They See Us. When They See when Us, yeah. yeah. So, you know, she did like a whole kind of educational piece on that. So it's not just, oh, let's make a film, but she actively wants people to to look at the history behind it and what the part it plays in society. You know, there's a deeper, deeper meaning in everything that she creates, which is amazing. So... Let's talk about the Oscars. <laughs> so it's just because looking over the past 10 years, obviously there's so many films that have come out since 2010 to 2021. And the Oscars kind of give you a little bit of snapshot in time on the kind of events that happened and the kind of roles that are going on. So I looked into the Oscar winning performances for Best Actress. So 2010, Natalie Portman, um, 2011, Meryl Streep, 2012, Jennifer Lawrence, 2013, Kate Blanchett, 2014, Julianne Moore, 2015, Brie Larson, 2016, Emma Stone, 2017, Frances McDormand, 2018, Olivia Coleman, 2019, Renee Zellweger. But then what I also looked into was the kind of tropes of the characters they played for those winning roles. So Natalie Portman, Mental Illness. Meryl Streep, Margaret Thatcher biopic. Now, I'm in the Northeast, so I can talk about Margaret Thatcher for a long time, but we don't have time today, my friends. Rachel is shaking <laughs> her head right now. Um, but it's a biopic. 2013, sorry, 20th, Jennifer Lawrence, mental illness. Kate Blanchett, more mental illness. Julianne Moore, dementia. Brie Larson, trauma. Rape victim, paedophilia. So much going on. Emma Stone, I can't on this one, I'm afraid, because not a fan of La La Land, and uh, I just I just can't speak on it. And um, I'm not going to, I'm just going to move on. I'm sorry, guys, can't do it today. Um, 2017, Francis McDormand, that was... So three billboards outside... Where was it? Missouri? I was going to say Epping then. <laughs> <laughs> Epping, Missouri. Epping, Missouri, there you go. There's a lot in that performance, but it was essentially about rape revenge um, and not just rape revenge. The fact that a woman was set on fire. Um, Olivia Coleman, comedic, queer, mental illness. And last but not least, Renee Zellweger, which was a biopic again. But there was some mental illness in that as well and drunk. Why are women only getting awards if they play someone who has mental illness? What, what's the crack there, guys? Tell me your thoughts. <laughs> and also, obviously, without saying... Why is everyone white and blonde? I saw that list and I was like, um, nobody. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't pick one. I had to go all the way back to Halle Berry. That's, that's yes. how far I went back. And even that's that movie, I was still confused. That role <laughs> is still a massive question mark. Massive one, in bold. Massive. I've got no words for Oscars. And I think it's also sad that 
Um, and I think we've just talked about it on our podcast as well, that I think that it's typecast. We typecast us. Uh, well, we typecast ourselves that we Hollywood typecasts women as well. But then even with the, uh, in a black um, community, then it's only guns or violence we get awarded for as well. There's not a fullness of story. There's no one, you know, you were talking about age with Ava Devani and I've, I've banged on about this to everybody who knows me. It's like, <laughs> I'm near a 40. And for me, the fact that she picks up the camera at 32 gives me hope. And everybody in who's winning awards is 12 in my eyes, in my eyes. <laughs> in reality, they're 12. not. 12, I love that. <laughs> it's like everyone's fresh, like, you know, no one is 35 and talking about a story to do with. That's why I love the 40 year old version by Rada Blanc. I can't understand why that hasn't been recommended everywhere. I just don't understand why no one's talking about that movie. That woman wrote the movie. She starred in the movie. She directed them, did everything. Nobody said anything. I just, I just don't get it. I, and I think it's because it's easier to keep us in a little box. Just be crazy in the corner and we'll praise you crazy. Okay, make sure you've got blonde hair. We'll praise you for being crazy with your blue eyes. And you can't be intelligent, you know, hidden figures. No, no, we don't want people who can do formulas. We don't need scientists. Just be crazy in the corner. That's, that's anyway, I'm going to get off my soapbox. But yeah, you, you stay up there all day. You go for it. <laughs> anyone, else, anyone else want to add to Ruby's uh, brilliant discourse there? I also think back to um, Hattie McDaniel, so the first black woman to oh. win an Oscar for a, you know, portraying the mammy trope and yes, ma'am, no, sir, blah, 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 blah. For B, not being allowed to even be there when she won the award, had to be in a separate room, wasn't allowed to sit with everyone. And it's just like, there was such a long gap because I think next was Halle Berry, right? In the early 2000s. So it's, it. it's ridiculous because... I, I'm, you know, not to talk on both of their roles, but they weren't unreal. They weren't amazing roles. I, I mean, I'm so happy for Halle Berry. That acceptance speech is probably hands down one of the best acceptance speeches that has ever happened. Um, and it's just, it's a shame. It really is a shame. And I, I don't really know why they're all blonde and white, but we know. It's like, I don't know, but you know why. I think <laughs> yeah. it's quite obvious. I mean... Well, what, what can we expect to a certain extent is held in America. The board is in America. You're looking at a country that has a history that's built upon this, you know, institutional racism. And then you have an award ceremony with mostly English speaking films. Like, what can you expect? You know what I mean? In that sense, like, it's inevitable. Let's talk about supporting actresses' roles as well, because there's not much. Well, we'll go through it. So 2010, Melissa Leo. 2011, Octavia Spencer. 2012, Anne Hathaway. 2013, Lupita Nyong'o. 2014, Patricia Arquette. 2015, Alicia Fikander. 2016, Viola Davis. 2017, Alice, Alison? Alison Janney. 2018, Regina King. And 2019, Laura Dern. So finally, some difference in there, but let's look at the roles. So Melissa Leo played a drunk, abusive mother. Otavia Spencer played a maid. Uh, also that year, by the way, uh, Viola Davis was also nominated. Anne Hathaway played a prostitute who died, sang a song. She was actually only on screen for 15 minutes. Did you know that? 15 minutes. And also, just a little fun fact, Viola Davis was nominated um, a decade earlier for... Doubt. She was on screen for eight minutes. Amazing. I love it. 
Lupita Nyong'o was a slave, was a rape victim, was horribly abused on screen. Patricia Arquette played a mother. Alicia Vikander played a wife. Viola Davis played a wife. Alison Janney played an abusive mother. Regina King played a mother. A brilliant one at that, I'm just saying. And Laura Dern played a lawyer. Again, recurring themes, recurring tropes, recurring patterns. So let's just look at the black women that are nominated for that decade. There's not exactly any roles there that really stand out and represent black women of today are there. It's very, I mean, they're all, all of them are period dramas. One set in the 60s, one set in the, I don't know when 12 Years a Slave was set actually, I'm trying to think of the decade or time. And for, I think Fences was set in the 60s or 70s, wasn't it? So there's no modern day representation that we are seeing that's been praised and uplifted. I mean, Moonlight is maybe the closest one we had with, um, Oh God, why have I forgotten her? Correct me, I've forgotten her name. Naomi Harris and Janelle Naomi Harris. Harris. And that's that's the kind of closest one we get really when it comes to a modern day representation of a black woman being uplifted into an awards category. It just seems like you can only get nominated if you play a maid or a slave from 50, 60 years ago at least. Do you think that's going to change in time? Because we haven't really seen that change recently with the films that have come out in the past year or two. Yeah, I love how they're trying to spin it. So I'm not sure if you've seen Lady Antebellum with uh, Janelle Monet. So they try to spin the whole being a slave thing with like more sci-fi elements and time travel and things like that. But I'm like, at the same time, it's still a slave film. Like it wasn't actually that great. And I love Janelle Monet. But um, yeah, don't get me started on The Help. That is Honestly, the biggest white saviour film I've ever seen. I would have rather Octavia Spencer get an Oscar for Ma than (laughs) (laughs) We're more than just one rate. You know what I mean? There's so much more. So the representative, when you look at it even more so, is even less representation. Even less. Because how many Asian women are in that list? Exactly, exactly. And I went crazy rich Asians came out. They were like, oh, this is brilliant. You know, we've got, I mean, Aquafina, she was not nominated for The Farewell, was she? But every other lead actress from a film that year got a nomination at that stage. I think she got a Golden Globe nom and that was that. I'm, I'm also thinking about, um, I think this is to what, like Ruby was saying, like we do it here in the UK. Obviously we're not like there's gatekeepers and stuff, but in terms of the stories, in America that they're trying to tell as well. You know, there are a lot of slave films, you know, they're really touching on that theme a lot. So again, it's like, you know, how many films are out there that show the ordinary, like black woman just going about her day? Not many, you know? So again, it's like, you know, what can we really say? Like they they chose that, well, they choose to kind of stay in that theme. So it's obviously down to directors to come out with new kind of storylines that, you know, maybe, I don't even know, even if they do, whether they'll get nominated. That's the thing, you know, yeah. because again, it's that they, they want to see a particular woman playing a particular role. So it's just like a little it's a, it's a hole that we have to kind of dig ourselves out of. Hugely. Sorry, I'm talking about TV now, but that's why I love Behind Her Eyes, because for me, she didn't have to be black. She could have been any race, but because the story, the story was so good that 
they placed they were they were just open to who they were going to cast I, I didn't see it as a particular any race kind of role and I think it was really great that they were a lot more challenging more much more inclusive and I think that's what we need to see we need to say mm. everybody's story is unique I think the other reason why we're seeing these type of stories is because the community reflects sometimes the writing that is coming out so in America I think at the t- at now they are very well my experience of a lot of Americans is it's it's a lot when I went to Canada last year it's it's very saturated in they're really passionate about their history with slavery and they want to keep it they want to push that agenda as the black community that's what I hear of especially mm-hmm. in America so I'm not really surprised that that's what's reflected because that's what they want to push they want you to remember this is this is what we went through kind of thing mm-hmm. and I think in the UK it's slightly different our challenge um, amongst ethnic minorities black whether it's Chinese whether it's Asian wherever you're from is different and and I think when you have more diverse writers then you will have more diverse stories so I think rather than just focusing on the output which is the directors the film the the actors and actresses we actually also need to diversify and focus in on more diverse writers and if we get more diverse stories Mm. more diverse films yeah I also think as well like the funding as well so it goes hand in hand with the writing it, it basically starts behind the scenes. So if you've got a, a black director, say we're talking about a black story, a black director, a, a writer, um, people that are interested in these stories to then help fund that, to then push that forward, to get it into a bigger, onto a bigger platform, I think that's kind of where it starts because I'm trying I'm hearing all this and I'm like what is the solution like where do we (laughs) where do we get to the root of it what is the root how do we try and change it but it's true we need the stories and we need the writers and we need the the funding women in British films I feel like it's either period drama or it's a working class pregnant teen mother or if we're talking about black women in British film, it's it's like that London gritty aesthetic of, you know, like brotherhood and adulthood, kid adulthood, all those films. And there's no kind of like common ground. Like where is just the average working woman yeah, in the someone UK? someone put me on screen. <laughs> I want to see someone who's struggling with their two children to keep yes. them same. Yeah. I want to see someone who is teaching in inner London just trying to keep safe. I want to see normal every day. I want to see myself on screen, right? Yeah. That's yeah. that's yeah, sorry to jump in, but that's no, I love that. Give me the passion with the energy. Like, I just want to see it in the UK. Oh, I just want to like I love that's why I think TV's doing it so much better because they've got yeah. they're just much more experimental, like motherland. Yeah really great series absolutely brilliant it's quirky there's diverse well they they kind of made it diverse towards the second series but that's not the point it was <laughs> it was diverse right yeah in the end and the story's real like she's just about to <laughs> she's losing her mind trying to raise her kids and her husband's useless I mean that's normal so <laughs> can't we see more of that yeah that and leads I feel really about... sorry Oh no, I know it's going back to TV, but I think about when I first saw Chewing Gum with Michaela Cole. And I just remember being like, this is freaking hilarious. It's, I remember like, you know, when you're like on your side laughing and I was like, where has this story been before? And she's walking around places I know that I frequent, that I've seen. And I'm going, 
this is fantastic. And what really annoyed me was that people, after I May Destroy You, people started to compare her to the woman that did Fleabag. Um, I can't yes. remember the name. And I was like, why? Is this comparable, really? Like, and it's the same with Viola Davis. She's the black Meryl Streep. Okay. Yes, why? Like, but can they not just coincide? Like, it's really odd that when you get a black female creative, you have to find a white counterpart to compare Mm -hmm. them to. And that's not really the way it should be. Why? Do you know what I mean? We shouldn't have to do that every single time. And it's just a bit weird when people do that because I don't compare, I don't know, James Cameron to Ridley Scott. I, I just don't, like, because I don't really care, like, to do something <laughs> like that. So I found that really interesting when you do get, you know, a black woman absolutely smashing it. Okay, quick, let's compare. Yeah. And so do you think that's because there's fear? There's a fear that the industry fear that people won't understand and that the audience won't receive, so they feel they have to explain and compensate. So that's the only way they can do that. Like, oh, just look at this person. They're like that, just so they're comfortable. Like, just so that you can breathe. Let me make comparisons. So I think sometimes that is fear and overcompensation because they know they've done wrong. So Mm. they're trying to overcompensate. And it's like, no, just chill. Just just let it be, just let them breathe. Yeah. So someone's... Someone's just put in the chat very well. Uh, the comparisons are lazy journalism, which is that's absolutely... what I was, that's what I was actually going to say, and then I saw it pop up in the chat because, as well as the lack of diversity, like you know, actually making films like film criticism is obviously, you know, it's still a boys' club and a white boys' club, and yeah, it's so it's just every every element, like at every point of the process, you've got this lack of diversity, so. Yeah, I don't really know what the solution is, but that's the problem. Yeah, I mean, Emily, you you work in film journalism, and do you feel like over the past like few years there's been a shift in the amount of female critics that are out there? Like, but then also there's that question that are they just being given the female-led films to watch and review because they've got like that pigeonhole again? It's like every area of the industry you're being pigeonholed because you're a woman. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely more women now in. in film criticism but it's mostly like the smaller independent publications like the big well I don't know like the national papers or like um I don't know sort of the the, like the household name places I think they're still it's still middle-aged white men essentially sort of you know like no disrespect to Mark Kermode but you know it's Mark Kermode and co basically um but um yeah and people definitely do get pigeonholed but I don't know, it's weird because then you get something like um, something like Minari, for example, and it's like, okay, well, where are the reviews by um, Korean critics? So, like, people do get pigeonholed, but they're not really... Not that, not that you should be pigeonholed if you are a Korean critic into only writing about... Yeah, not But it's like, you do want to hear those voices when it matters, so... Yeah, it's all, it's just all a bit of a mess, really. I just want to revisit um, some of Ruby's comments as well and also some of the themes we saw in the supporting actress trope where a lot of the roles that women play are mothers. Um, obviously, we have a couple of very hardworking mothers in the chat here today. Um, Rachel, for example, um, do you feel like the representation of motherhood on screen is at all realistic? No, 
not remotely. <laughs> take take not a moment remotely. to think about your answer. I know. Um, it's, you know, I'm a single mum and I'm in my 30s and I um, put together a pitch, wrote something and they said, oh, well, could you make it about younger people, younger mothers? And I'm like, do you know what? No, because <laughs> this is what I am going through. I'm trying to work it all out as a single mum, you know, and, and I'm going, you know, even to, to see that they go, oh, no, well, you you if if that's you people are often like oh my god you're a single mom oh and I'm like no you don't have to feel sorry for me I'm rocking it and I'm living it and I'm doing my best but you know what it's that representation isn't realistic I agree with Ruby motherland I saw it and I went yes brilliant um duchess that was on that um that Catherine Ryan did again I thought brilliant this is something a bit different but then you go, the people in all of these are people who are already established, already have careers. And how fresh and exciting would it be to turn on the TV and just see a cast of people we've not seen before? And that's why some of the TV shows we're getting through now where new people are getting an opportunity to just break through and shine is so refreshing to watch. But I still, I don't think there's anything that I've ever watched and gone, oh yeah, I feel like that's very me or that represents me and what I go through. And this this is why I wrote this thing that I put forward, but apparently it's not, you know, nobody wants to see anyone in their 30s struggling. Disagree, disagree. You said someone else. Don't worry, I'm with you, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it seems, I mean, like Ruby, we'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but it just seems like motherhood on screen is either... Well, it's very usually at rock bottom. We're always seeing rock bottom motherhood where they're struggling and the, the world's against them and everything's going wrong. And why, 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 why is that? Against, is that something that's against? Is that that misogynistic tone where that motherhoods are, you know, you're not allowed a life. You are a mother. And if you're not a good mother, you're terrible. But if you're a terrible mother, you're also terrible. But if you're a good mother, are you really? Good? Are you really a good mother? Are you really? I think with motherhood, it's a really difficult because I think it's really hard to get the balance. That's the honest truth. Like it's even like you're you're sailing one day and then the next day you literally are looking for Cheerios at the back of the sofa. It's, <laughs> it's just the reality of life. But I think that um, they they are. T- there is like you're saying there's that really your drunken mother or you're an a-star mother who's also like got the house that is brilliant I don't think in the the US they've got those polar opposites in here in the UK it feels very much like in films it's very gritty um especially from like women tend to be like you said about working class and it's like you're broke you're always broke there's never milk in the house you're dragging these children like to the corner shop it's never anything polished it's never like you know you're trying to balance the both and that's why I love motherland so much because it was a woman who was literally just trying to do her life but it feels like we don't have British movies like that where it talks about uh, women in motherhood and the realities because the reality is it is it is a you know I love my children, but my back is aching. Go to bed. Like, that's just the reality of it. So, but there's nothing on film that does that in the UK. Definitely not. I was trying to think about a woman going through a divorce. And the only thing I can think of is Adam Driver hitting the wall. in marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Every day I wake got. up. That, that's it. That's all we've got. <laughs> it's terrible. When I got divorced, I literally, nobody would talk about it. So I found a podcast called The Divorce Podcast with Samantha Baines, which is brilliant and that was literally people talking about it and 
you know, it was even referred to as my ex-husband by shameful going on the podcast and talking about my own experiences because that shouldn't be talked about. But you know what? It should. And I think it's, it. you know, so many people go through these kind of things. Why shouldn't it be seen? Yeah. You know? there was I find it really, that- really frustrates me when people think that just because these things have happened that your life must be really rubbish. You only when you when you talk about divorce, you only see the aftermath. So someone's only just gone through a divorce on screen, or they're dating after a divorce, or they're about to divorce. It's never the actual process. That's a really that's that's something I never thought about before. Actually, good point. Even even as well, I was thinking when you guys were talking about mothers, I was thinking I don't know why rock popped up in my head. But I really wish they touched on that a bit more and give more context as to why and like why she went away. It was just like she disappeared. But, you know, they didn't really touch and hone in on, you know, obviously that might have not been the bane of the story. But I think it would have given a bit more of an edge to the film. And then obviously, yes, we can obviously, you know, um, kind of feel sorry for Bookie's character as well. But I think, you know, that would have been a good opportunity to really touch on motherhood. But they didn't for whatever reason. And considering that it's such a huge part of most women's lives, obviously not all women choose to be mothers, but and but then there's the flip side of that. Why don't we have films about women that don't want to be mothers? Why that is that storyline not explored as well? So let's just obviously coming from divorce as well. Let's talk about the representation of marriage. Um, obviously looking at the the Oscar winning performances, just as a reference, you've got um, Alicia Vikander, for example, one for being the wife of a man who become transgender you then got Viola Davis who was the wife of a man who cheated on her and treated her terribly you've got um I've lost a wife I've lost a wife um and just just about like Kate Blanchett that kind of whole marriage Julianne Moore the fact that she went through that kind of relationship and it's it just seems to be it's always rock bottom it's always women at rock bottom and as much as you know it's yeah it's not realistic to see a representation of a woman in film that's always happy and has a very happy marriage what is the secret please tell me um but it's just mm. having that that variety and that kind of element that we're not just wives and with girlfriends and mothers like there's so many elements to it like i really loved tully that come out um a few years ago where it was Charlize Theron playing a mother that was obviously going through past postpartum depression, which is another thing we should talk about more on film. And it was just realistic in the fact that she was like, I love my children, but I'm so unhappy. And I watched it and thought that that's motherhood right there. That is realistic. That is as close to the point as it is. And yet we're not really getting that. Like if you look at the films you've watched the past year, ask yourself how many of them are mothers. And it seems to just be this silent secret that we just aren't exploring in film enough. There's a growing number of women entering business. Huge. Like we are, most of the people, most of the small businesses are run by women majority of them and you know when you've got massive retailers this it doesn't make business sense to me why we're not doing that on screen surely that would make more business sense anyway there's a whole market of women who are literally running businesses from their dining room table but we're not telling their story 
if there is a career woman in film, it's always like, oh, you know, girl boss, you know, she wears six oh, inch heels, yeah, she's the CEO of a company. And it's like, yeah. like there is some middle ground here. There is, there is. Like you, It's not like your CEO or the intern. Like there's a lot of space in between those two big career steps. And as well, I think that a lot of the time you see women in that position, they then either lose the job or they give up the job for a guy or something happens where they're like, oh, actually, I don't want this job anymore. Like, you don't just get someone just bossing it. Also, not to segue again, because I've been doing this all day, but <laughs> when we were talking when we were talking about women's representation as mothers, mothers in film, I think it really speaks to the misogyny that anytime you have a single dad, it's always favourable, like the dad and oh, yeah. all the boys, or Sleepless in Seattle, or like three men and a baby, where it's three single guys, like, raising this baby. And it's like, it's always really, like, cute and comedic and it's like attractive to women exactly well. <laughs> yeah yeah they had, that, they had that show baby daddy didn't they which is literally about this young hot guy raising a child on his own yeah and it was like a light comedy it wasn't yeah. it didn't speak to the kind of struggles that you see when we're talking about motherhood um on screen or the lack of representation in the way that it should be on screen I also can't believe that if uh, there isn't an unha- a happy ending for our heroine in a film or in a TV show, there's so much outrage. If you think of something like Fleabag, how many people were so disappointed with that ending because they expected it to be a certain yeah. way. And they were just like, no, why can't this, why can't this be, why can't they be together? Why, how come, how can she be on her own? How dare she? Yeah. How dare she? and it not all work out. And I think that probably um, ties into your point, Ruby, about us being sold alive by Hollywood. <laughs> Another film that pops into my mind, a Tyler Perry film, loved it, Acrimony. I don't know if any of you guys saw it. I have seen <laughs> Like, when you what, what did you love about it, tell me? Breakdown, when you talk about relationship breakdown and how that just kind of, yeah. Like, I think, I think, I think that was a good kind of representation in a way. I but, love the that. Ending, but the ending, but the ending, <laughs> yeah, the ending, ending was, though. The ending, the ending was poor, but I think, I think, yeah, I'm surprised it didn't get nominated for nothing. Like Taraji killed it. Yeah, as always, as yeah. always. I know she's not, she's not treated the way that she should be. I read yesterday about her, um, how much she got paid for the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. She got paid forty thousand dollars, and the film made hundreds of millions. And she was nominated for an Oscar for it. And it was her breakthrough role. And it was like 40K is what she got paid. And she said that she didn't go and fight it once the film was so successful because she didn't want to fall into the trope of the angry black woman. But that is ridiculous. You can't give a a performance to be nominated for an Oscar and get paid 40K next to Brad Pitt, who probably got like... Millions. Millions. Like I think we've spoken about before about the being the token on the board and us just accepting that we're the token and being okay that we're the token woman or we're token whatever race we are or whatever and just accepting we're going to have to take it on the chin and eventually this becomes the norm but we're going to have to be the token at the moment and that's okay because in order to get you know for the great game we have to pay the price kind of thing as well. Yeah, and I mean, like, for when you say, like, the, the current people to be diverse, I don't think that's... Realistically, I don't think that's going to happen unless they start looking down towards the new incoming. Like, I think it was um one of the BAFTAs... 
kind of breakthrough, BAFTA breakthrough. And it was like a lot of the people on the list were not breakthrough. They've been in the industry for 10 years plus. Every year, I think that. Every single year. I'm just like, okay, so you haven't obviously been aware of who's coming into the industry. So if, like, yeah, like, so when it, when you talk about diversifying the board of directees or people that make the decisions, like that, I doubt that's going to happen because even those people that are currently sitting there, they have their own ideologies and theories of how they want things done. So like, like Carrie's rightly said, we've got to wait until they just, yeah, time goes on. Do you know what I mean? But it is a shame because yeah, there's a lot of really talented people that, you know, I think the mindset that they have is to open doors for other people, you know, to to kind of you know really give opportunities for new people. But yeah, for those people to reach the position of those other people that are currently sitting in those seats is going to take a long, long time. And you know, I'll probably be sixty by then. Who knows? <laughs> and still rocking it. Don't you worry. Yeah. These institutions are just like almost rotten to the core. It's like, can you even change them, or is, or do yeah. we just need to sort of like start start from the beginning? You know, sort of burn it all down essentially. We probably rightly so have to do what Tyler Perry did and just make our own table. Literally, do you know what I mean? Because you know, who's to say that you know those ideologies are not passed down? Who knows? Do you know what I mean? Because someone's got to carry the legacy of what's been built. Someone's going to do it. It's not just going to change overnight. Thank you, Lolly. Thank you, Ruby. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Lauren, who's had to leave. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Laverne. Thank you, Emily, for joining us on this wonderful session. You've all been amazing. We've got to have you back to talk about more things. Absolutely got to have you back. Um, And thank you, everyone, who tuned in today and listened and celebrated our birthday with us. And uh, just a big thank you to Neha, who is my partner in crime, who has been incredible today, a proper trooper. Um, Absolutely adore you. And to all the Rian Pictures team, who have been working very hard behind the scenes, checking facts, Googling how old Halle Berry was when she won, checking films. Um, You've been fantastic. Thank you all so much. And uh, we will see you again very soon, I am sure. Bye, guys.